Hello. Hello. This is Amy, and this is Megan, and this is the Activity Continues podcast. Each week, we dissect an episode of the TV show The Dead Files. Like, sort of, was in a trance-like state. Woke up, came to, and was spinning a knife. And oh she- my god! <laughs> We also talk about other TV shows, movies, and podcasts, paranormal and otherwise. Really good um, yep. podcast. I really like them. They, they're they really fun, and they do a really good job of covering yeah. their cases. They do lots of research. So Yep, yep. We've both had paranormal experiences through our lives and continue to do so. So we talk about those things, too. So I have to tell you about I had this weird thing happen <gasps> that tell was me. like... I call it like a glitch in the matrix. You have a lot of matrix I glitches. I do have. I do. And we also share listener paranormal stories. But that was my experience at Villisca. Join us as we talk about true crime, paranormal, and other creepy shit. Mix up a cocktail. Or a mocktail. Don't worry, Steve's driving. Sometimes that wine cream just hits the spot. I know. I'm saying. Sometimes it does. <laughs> Hop in the caddy and join us for a wild ride. When the activity activity continues. continues. Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have entered the mind of someone that has a taste for the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside, warm up your mug, and enjoy your visit into the world that is the nightcap. Welcome back, my friends, to the Nightcap, where nothing is taboo or wicked, and the topics are always eerie and intriguing. Before we begin, I want to give a quick thanks to Rank the Podcasts. He's a fantastic promoter of all indie programs, and does a lot of work to make sure the little guy is noticed. Please follow him on Instagram, and be sure to tell him the Nightcap sent you if you need his services. Details will be in the episode description. Moving right along, we have more ground to cover in part two of these tumultuous terror tales, which I have called the loved and neglected of human horrors. Rather than bore you with my ramblings by the fire, how about you regain your seat and secure your comfort levels, because you're going to need a strong resolve and fortitude to get through the last on this list. Let's begin. Our next gruesome contestant goes by the name of Dennis Lynn Raider, aka BTK, which stands for Bind, Torture, Kill, and needs no real introduction, but for those of you out of the loop, he is one of the most sadistic cretins on this list. Born in Columbus, or Pittsburgh, Kansas in 1945, Dennis came from a normal family with three older brothers. He said he felt ignored by his parents as they were hard-working, no-nonsense people. From a young age, Dennis harbored sadistic sexual fantasies about torturing trapped and helpless women. He also exhibited zoo sadism by torturing, killing, and hanging small animals. Dennis acted out sexual fetishes for voyeurism, autoerotic asphyxiation, and cross-dressing. 
He often spied on female neighbors while dressed in women's clothing, including women's underwear that he had stolen and masturbated with ropes of other bindings around his arms and neck. Never excelling at school, Dennis did attempt going to college, but got mediocre grades and ended up enlisting in the U.S. Air Force from 1966 to 1970. Upon discharge, he moved to Park City, which is a suburb in Wichita, where he worked in the meat department of a Leaker's IGA supermarket, where his mother was a bookkeeper. Later, Dennis married Paula Dietz in 1971 and had two children, a son and daughter, named Carrie and Brian. Upon being discharged, Dennis attended Butler Community College and earned an Associates in Electronics in 1973. He then enrolled in Wichita State University and graduated in 1979 with a Bachelor of Science degree, majoring in Administration of Justice. Dennis had many jobs over the years. He initially worked as an assembler for the Coleman Company, an outdoor supply company. He then worked at the Wichita-based office of ADT Security Services from 74 to 88, where he installed security alarms as part of his job, in many cases for homeowners concerned about the BTK killings. Dennis was a census field operations supervisor for the Wichita area in 1989 before the 1990 federal census. He also worked as a dog catcher, where some neighbors noticed his overzealous nature in catching them. One neighbor recalled Dennis killing her dog for no real reason. These should have been early warning signs to many people, but Dennis was a chameleon of sorts, blending in even being a devout member of his local Lutheran church and Cub Scout leader. The murders Dennis committed are fairly horrifying, so recommend anyone that isn't fully prepared to stop listening now. On January 15, 1974, four members of the Otero family were murdered in Wichita, Kansas. The victims were Joseph Otero, age 38, Julie Otero, age 33, Joseph Otero Jr., age 9, and Josephine Otero, age 11. Their bodies were discovered by the family's three older children, Charlie, Danny, and Carmen, who had been at school at the time of the killings, leaving three of the older siblings to discover the bodies. When they arrived home later in the day, their corpses were bound, cut up, and strangled. Between the spring of 1974 and winter 1977, Dennis killed three more women, Catherine Bright, Shirley Vian Relford, and Nancy Fox. In early 1978, he sent a letter to television station KAKE in Wichita, claiming responsibility for the murders of the Oteros, Bright, Vivian Relford, and many others. He suggested many possible names for himself, including the one that stuck, BTK. He demanded media attention in this letter, and it was finally announced that Wichita did indeed have a serial killer at large. A poem was enclosed titled, Oh, Death to Nancy, a parody of the lyrics to the American folk song, Oh, Death. In the letter, he claimed to be driven to kill by Factor X, which he characterized as a supernatural element that also motivated Jack the Ripper, the Son of Sam, and the Hillside Strangler murders. He also intended to kill others, such as Anna Williams, who in 1979, age 63, escaped death by returning home much later than expected. Dennis explained during his confession that he became obsessed with Williams and was absolutely livid when she evaded him. He spent hours waiting at her home, but became impatient and left when she did not return home from visiting friends. Marine Hedge, age 53, was found on May 5, 1985, at East 53rd Street, north between North Webb Road and North Greenwich Road in Wichita. 
Dennis killed her on April 27th and took her dead body to his church, Christ Lutheran Church, where he was the president of the church council. There, he photographed her body in various bondage positions. Dennis had previously stored black plastic sheets and other materials at the church in preparation for the murder and then later dumped the body in a remote ditch. He had called this plan Project Cookie. In 1988, after the murders of three members of the Fager family in Wichita, a letter was received from someone claiming to be the BTK killer, in which the author of the letter denied being the perpetrator of the Fager murders. The author credited the killer with having done admirable work. It was not proven until 2005 that this letter was in fact written by Dennis. He is not considered by police to have committed this crime. His final victim, Dolores E. Davis, was found on February 1st, 1991 at West 117th Street North and North Meridian Street in Park City. Dennis killed her on January 19th. Stalking charges were also filed against Dennis by various women, but no violent acts were ever brought upon them. In 2004, the investigation of the BTK killer was considered a cold case. Then, Dennis initiated a series of 11 communications to the local media. This activity led directly to his arrest in February 2005. In March 2004, the Wichita Eagle received a letter from someone using the name Bill Thomas Kilman. The author of the letter claimed that he had murdered Vicki Wigler on September 16, 1986, and enclosed photographs of the crime scene from a photocopy of her driver's license, which had been stolen at the time of the crime. Before this, it had not been definitively established that Wigler was killed by BTK. DNA collected from under Wiggler's fingernails provided police with previously unknown evidence. They then began DNA testing hundreds of men in an effort to find the serial killer. Altogether, more than 1,300 DNA samples were taken and later destroyed by court order. In May 2004, television station KEKE in Wichita received a letter with chapter headings for the BTK story fake IDs, and a word puzzle. On June 9th, a package was found taped to a stop sign at the corner of 1st and Kansas Roads in Wichita. It had graphic descriptions of the Otero murders and a sketch labeled, The Sexual Thrill is My Bill. Also enclosed was a chapter list for a proposed book titled The BTK Story, which mimicked a story written in 1999 by Court TV crime writer David Lore. Chapter 1 was titled, A Serial Killer is Born. In July, a package dropped into the return slot at a public library contained more bizarre material, including the claim that he was responsible for the death of 19-year-old Jake Allen in Argonia, Texas earlier that month. This claim was false, and the death was ruled a suicide. After his capture, Dennis admitted in his interrogation that he had been planning to kill again, and he had to set a date, October 2004, and was stalking his intended victim. In October 2004, a manila envelope was dropped into a UPS box in Wichita. It had many cards with images of terror and bondage, of children pasted on them, a poem threatening the life of lead investigator Lieutenant Ken Lidwer, and a false autobiography with many details about Dennis's life. These details were later released to the public. In December 2004, Wichita police received another package from the BTK killer. This time, the package was found in Wichita's Murdoch Park. It had the driver's license of Nancy Fox, which was noted as stolen from the crime scene, as well as a doll that was symbolically bound at the hands and feet. 
and had a plastic bag tied over its head. In 2005, Dennis attempted to leave a cereal box in the bed of a pickup truck at a Home Depot in Wichita, but the box was discarded by the truck's owner. It was later retrieved from the trash after Dennis asked what had become of it in a later message. Surveillance tape of the parking lot from the date revealed a distant figure driving a black Jeep Cherokee leaving the box in the pickup. In February 2005, more postcards were sent to KAKE and another cereal box left at a rural location was found to contain another bound doll. In his letters to police, Dennis asked if his writings, if put on a floppy disk, could be traced or not. The police answered his question in a newspaper and posted it in the Wichita Eagle, saying it would be safe to use the disk. On February 16, 2005, Dennis sent a purple 1.44 megabyte Memorex floppy disk to Fox affiliate KSAS-TV in Wichita. Also enclosed were a letter, a gold-colored necklace with a large medallion, and a photocopy of the cover of Rules of Prey, a 1989 novel by John Sanford about a serial killer. Police found metadata embedded in a deleted Microsoft Word document that was, unknown to Dennis, still stored on the floppy disk. The metadata contained the words Christ Lutheran Church, and the document was marked as last modified by Dennis. An internet search determined that a Dennis Raider was president of the church council. When investigators drove by Dennis's house, a black Jeep Cherokee, the type of vehicle seen in the Home Depot surveillance footage, was parked outside. This was strong circumstantial evidence against Dennis, but they needed more direct evidence to detain him. Police obtained a warrant to test a pap smear taken by Dennis's daughter at the Kansas State University Medical Clinic. DNA tests showed a familial match between the pap smear and a sample from Wiggler's fingernails. This indicated that the killer was closely related to Dennis's daughter and combined with the other evidence was enough for police to arrest Dennis. Dennis had a very unusual apprehension. Dennis was arrested while driving near his home in Park City in the early afternoon on March 25, 2005. An officer asked, Mr. Raider, do you know why you're going downtown? Dennis replied, oh, I have suspicions, why? Wichita Police, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, and ATF agents searched Dennis's home and vehicle, seizing evidence including computer equipment, a pair of black pantyhose retrieved from a shed, and a cylindrical container. The church he attended, his office at City Hall, and the main branch of the Park City Library were also searched. At a press conference the next morning, Wichita Police Chief Norman Williams announced the bottom line BTK is arrested. On June 25, 2005, Dennis catches prosecutors off guard by pleading guilty to 10 counts of first-degree murder. Dennis provides the court with explicit details on how he selected, stalked, and finally killed each of his victims. His lawyer later notes that they went with the guilty plea due to overwhelming evidence against their client and the lack of firm legal footing on which to enter an insanity plea. On August 8, 2005, the two-day sentencing hearing features testimony from investigators who described Dennis's documentation of his torture-fueled sexual fantasies, emotional pleas from the victim's families, and an apology from the convicted killer, who expresses hope that the families will one day forgive him. Having committed his murders, before Kansas reintroduced the death penalty in 1994, the BTK killer received a sentence of 10 consecutive life terms in prison for a minimum of 175 years without the possibility of parole. 
As with some previous entries, some children from these human nightmares either sought to gain clarity, understanding, or outright disavowed their relationship to their mother or father, but Carrie Rawlson went a different direction. For the first 26 years of her life, Rawlson knew her father, Dennis Rader, as a family man who could be gruff at times, but who loved her. A man who was the president of his church, a Boy Scout troop leader, and an Air Force veteran. A man who was nearly 60 at this point, balding and wore glasses. Then, suddenly, in a matter of minutes, he was being named among the most notorious serial killers by the FBI agent standing in Rawlson's new Michigan apartment. I was gripping the wall next to my stove. The room was spinning. I was saying, I think I'm going to pass out, she said. The agent was asking me questions about my dad, about dates and things, and I was trying to almost find an alibi for my father. I was like, my father is a good guy. From the moment the FBI agent broke the news to her, Rowlison said it felt like her whole life was a lie. In her new book, A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming, Rowlison describes struggling to reconcile the loving father she knew with a psychopathic murderer known as BTK. It has taken me a long time to even be able to say that out loud, she said, referring to her book title, but it is the truth. Dennis's killing spree began in January 74, where he targeted four members of the Otero family, killing Joseph and Julia Otero and two of their five children. He killed 21-year-old Catherine Bright later that year, and his next two victims, Shirley Vian and Nancy Fox, in 1977. I was born in 78, Ralston said. My dad murdered a young woman when my mom was three months pregnant with me. In the years after his last killing, the Raider family continued to live their everyday lives. Rawlson went to Kansas State University, where she met her husband, Darian. In 2003, Dennis walked his daughter down the aisle at her wedding. Then, the Wichita Eagle newspaper ran a story in 2004 about the 30th anniversary of the unsolved Otero family murders, and we included in the piece that nobody remembered him, which invoked his ire, said Michael Rowan, the executive director of the Wichita Eagle. So Dennis decided to send a letter to the Wichita Eagle under the name Bill Thomas Kilman, or BTK, as the return address. Rawlson said she first read about the serial killer in Wichita in an article on abcnews.com. As she started to learn more, Rawlson said she assumed the killer was a loner, some guy who had been in trouble with the law in the past. She never suspected the man she was reading about online would turn out to be her father. In an effort to avoid tipping Dennis off, authorities obtained a search warrant to access Rawlson's medical records from her college's health center. They took her annual pap smears to get samples of her DNA for testing. I had no idea, Rawlson said. It would have been nice if someone had asked me for my DNA. I would have willingly given it. I understand why nobody approached me. They needed to catch my dad. They needed to be safe about it. They needed to do it quick. At the time, it felt like an invasion of my privacy. After her father's confession, Rawlson tried to find ways to cope with what had happened. She said a pastor at their church encouraged her to write to him as he was in jail, which she did. I had to learn how to grieve a man who was not dead, somebody I loved very much that no one else loved anymore, she said. I wasn't corresponding with BTK. I'm never corresponding with BTK, Rawson continued. I'm talking to the man that I lived with and loved for 26 years. I still love my dad today. I love the man I knew. I don't know a psychopath. That's not the man I knew and loved. 
Ralston couldn't bring herself to attend her father's court appearances, where he recounted how he tried to make one of his victims comfortable by offering him a pillow as he was killing him. After my father's plea and sentencing in August of 2005, I shut down, Ralston said. I was mad. I was done. I wiped my hands of him for two years. Ralston said her mother was granted an emergency divorce in July 2005. Ralston is empathetic that neither she nor her mother or her brother knew anything about their father's killings prior to his arrest. If we had had an inkling that my father had harmed anyone, let alone murdered anyone, let alone ten, we would have gone screaming out that door to the police station, she said. We were living our normal life. We looked like a normal American family because we were a normal family. As time passed, Ralston said she tried for nearly ten years to avoid telling people she was Dennis's daughter. I live with depression and anxiety. I'm suffering from PTSD, she said. I had my family. I had my husband. I had therapy. But you're sort of alone. It's a very lonely club. The worst club you could ever imagine belonging to, being the daughter of a serial killer. The problem is, if you live such a quiet, private life, it sits inside you and eats at you because it's like something you have to hide or something you have to be ashamed of, Robson added. She said she wrote her dad in 2007 to let him know she was pregnant with her first child, a daughter, but then said she cut off communication with him again for five years afterward. She now also has a son in addition to her daughter. When my daughter was around five, she started noticing she only had one grandfather, and you know, she was kind of like, well, where's the other grandfather, Robson said. So I said, you know, I have a father, but he's in jail, and she's just this little thing, so she's like, well, what is jail? And I was like, well, it's like a really long time out. Ralston said she began writing her father again in 2012 and still does to this day because she has forgiven him. It was a very long journey, Ralston said. There was a lot of hard work in me with faith. I had gone back to church. I was working on my relationship with God, working on my own heart. Ralston decided to come forward to talk about her story now, after all this time, she said, because she wants to start taking control of her story. I'm trying to say I've gone through hell. I'm still here. You too can overcome things. Don't ever give up. No matter what you're going through, you can get through it, she said. A loving daughter that has so much kindness and affection for a father that is neither, and still continues her strange journey at forgiveness. There's nothing more tragic and heartfelt than that, and I will admit that she is the bigger person in this scenario because if I were in her shoes, no amount of security guard or bars would keep me from strangling him for all the hurt he has inflicted. If serial killers were created equal, it would be easier to catch and convict them. But the cases often get chilling with some, and none more so, than our next entry. Richard Kuklinski, aka the Iceman, is a strange specimen indeed, and the reason for that is he isn't typically what you think of when serial killers come to mind. He didn't start out as anything but normal early on. Born in New Jersey, parents were working class Polish immigrants, and they had siblings and the whole nine yards. As the years progressed, however, his parents were abusive drunks that beat him regularly with his father routinely abandoning his family. His mother was especially cruel. She would beat Richard with broom handles, sometimes breaking the handle on his body during the assaults and other household objects. He recalled an incident during his preteen years when his mother attempted to kill Stanley with a kitchen knife. 
Anna was a zealous Catholic and believed that stern discipline should be accompanied by a strict religious upbringing, the same way she was raised. She raised her son in the Roman Catholic Church, where he became an altar boy. Kuklinski later rejected Catholicism. Kuklinski regarded his mother as a cancer, who destroyed everything she touched. His siblings were all normal except for his brother Joseph, who raped and killed a 12-year-old girl in 1970, throwing her from atop a five-story building, even sending her dog to its death. When later asked about him, Kuklinski simply said, We came from the same father. In the mid-1960s, Kuklinski worked at a Manhattan film lab. Through the lab, he accessed master copies of popular films, and he made bootleg copies of Disney animated films to sell. He also discovered a lucrative market for tapes of pornographic movies. Copying and distributing pornography was a regular source of income for him. He was once arrested for passing a bad check, the only crime he was charged with prior to his arrest for murder. He was photographed and fingerprinted, but the charges were dropped after he agreed to pay back the money owed. Several of his known murder victims were men he met through trafficking, pornography, and drugs. He also headed a burglary group with Gary Smith, Barbara Denper, Daniel Debner, and Percy House. Kuklinski's first known murder occurred on January 30th, 1980, killing George Malibrand during a meeting to sell him tapes. Maliban was reportedly carrying $27,000 at the time. After a plea bargain, Kuklinski admitted to shooting him five times, explaining it was due to business. Maliban's body was discovered a week later, on February 5, 1980. Kuklinski had placed him in a 55-gallon drum and left it near the Chemtex chemical plant in Jersey City. He had to cut the tendons on Maliban's leg in order to fit the corpse into the barrel. This was the first murder linked to Kuklinski. Maliban's brother told police officers Maliban was meeting Kuklinski the day he disappeared. In 1982, Kuklinski met Paul Hoffman, a 51-year-old pharmacist who occasionally browsed the store in Patterson, New Jersey, a storefront with a back room holding a wide variety of stolen items for sale and purchase. Hoffman hoped to make a big profit by purchasing stolen tagamet, a popular drug to treat peptic ulcers, and to resell them through his pharmacy. He believed Kuklinski could supply the drugs and badgered him to make a deal. Hoffman was last seen on his way to meet Kuklinski with $25,000 to buy prescription drugs from him. After a plea bargain, Kuklinski admitted to killing Hoffman on April 29, 1982. He stated that he lured Hoffman into a rented garage and tried to shoot him, but the gun jammed. So instead, he beat Hoffman to death with a tire iron. He said he then stuffed the body into a 55-gallon drum and left outside a motel in Little Ferry. One day, Kuklinski noticed that the drum had disappeared, but never learned what had happened to it. Hoffman's body was never recovered. By the early 1980s, Kuklinski's burglary gang was under investigation by law enforcement. In December 1982, Percy House, a member of the gang, was arrested. House agreed to inform on Kuklinski and was placed in protective custody. Warrants were also issued for the arrest of two other gang members, Gary Smith and Daniel Deppner. Kuklinski urged them to lay low and rented them a room at the York Motel in North Bergen, New Jersey. Smith left the motel to visit his daughter. Kuklinski feared that Smith, after he discussed going straight, might become an informant. According to the testimony of Barbara Deppner, Kuklinski, Daniel Deppner, and House, in jail at the time, decided that Smith had to be killed. Kuklinski fed Smith a hamburger laced with cyanide, but when this was slow to work, 
Daniel Deppner also strangled Smith with a lamb cord. According to forensic pathologist Michael Baden, Smith's death would probably have been attributed to something non-homicidal in nature, such as a drug overdose, if Kukinski relied solely on the poison. However, the ligature mark around Smith's neck and the fact that the body had been deliberately hidden proved to investigators that he was murdered. After Barbara Deppner did not return with a car to move Smith's body, Kukinski and Daniel Deppner placed it in between the mattress and box spring. Over the next four days, a number of patrons rented the room, and although they thought the smell in the room was odd, most of them did not think to look under the bed. Finally, on December 27, 1982, after more complaints from the guests about the smell, the motel manager investigated and discovered the decomposing corpse. After Smith's murder, Kuklinski moved Deppner to an apartment in Bergenfeld, New Jersey, belonging to Rich Patterson, then fiancé of Kuklinski's daughter, Merrick. Patterson was away at the time, but Kuklinski possessed keys to the apartment. Between February and May 1983, Deppner was killed by Kuklinski. Investigators deduced he was murdered in Patterson's apartment after discovering a bloody carpet. Kukunski enlisted Patterson's help to dispose of Deppner's body, telling Patterson the victim was a friend in trouble with law enforcement, and someone had broken in and killed him over the weekend. He added it was best to dump the body to avoid trouble with the police, then forget about the incident. Kukunski made another mistake when he informed an associate they had killed Deppner. Deppner's corpse was discovered May 14, 1983, after a bicyclist riding Clinton Road in a wooded area of West Milford, New Jersey, spotted the corpse surrounded by vultures. Kuklinski wrapped the corpse inside green garbage bags before dumping it. Medical examiners listed Deppner's cause of death as undetermined, although they noted pinkish spots on his skin, a possible sign of cyanide poisoning. Deppner was also strangled. Investigators guessed that Deppner had already been incapacitated, such as by poison, because the partially eaten corpse had no defensive wounds, and healthy adult men are rarely killed by strangulation. Medical examiner also found Deppner's stomach full of undigested food, indicating that he had died shortly after or during a meal. The beans that Deppner had eaten were burned, so they reasoned the meal was home-cooked because most restaurants would not get away with serving burned food to customers. Investigating officers discovered the corpse just three miles away from the ranch, where Kuklinski's family often went horseback riding. Deppner was the third Kuklinski associate to be found dead. On September 25, 1983, the body of Louis Masquet was discovered near a town park near Clausland Mountain Road in Orangetown, New York, with a bullet hole in the back of his head. Masquet disappeared over two years earlier, on July 1st, 1981, the day he was to meet Kuklinski at a New Jersey diner to purchase a large quantity of blank videocassette recorder tapes, for which Masquet had $95,000 in his van. His body was stored in the freezer, then discovered 15 months later. After another plea bargain, Kuklinski admitted to shooting Masquet. However, Kuklinski did not thaw the corpse before he dumped it. He also wrapped it in a plastic garbage bag, which then kept it insulated and partially frozen. The Rockland County Medical Examiner found ice crystals inside the body on a warm September day. If the body had thawed before discovery, the medical examiner stated he probably would never have noticed Kuklinski's trickery. Investigators realized Maskey was wearing the clothes his wife and son said he was wearing the day he disappeared. 
The discovery Kuklinski froze Maskey's corpse encouraged law enforcement officers to nickname him Iceman. Newspaper reporters sensationalized Kuklinski's frequently used moniker of Iceman in headlines. Kuklinski came to the attention of Pat Kane, an officer with the New Jersey State Police, when an informant helped Kane connect him to a gang carrying out burglaries in northern New Jersey. He built a file on him. Eventually, five unsolved homicides, Hoffman, Smith, Deppner, Maskey, and Maliband, were linked to Kuklinski because he was the last person to see each of them alive. A joint task force of law enforcement officials titled Operation Iceman was created between the New Jersey Attorney General's Office and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms dedicated to arresting and convicting Kuklinski. The ATF was involved due to Kuklinski's firearm sales. ATF Special Agent Dominic Poliferone went undercover for 18 months to apprehend Kuklinski. Starting in 1985, Kane and Poliferone worked with Phil Solomine, a close longtime friend of Kuklinski, to get Poliferone close to Kuklinski. Posing as a mafia-connected criminal named Dominic Provenzano, Poliferone purchased a handgun muffler combination from Kuklinski. In recordings, Kuklinski discussed a corpse he kept in a freezer for two and a half years. He told Poliferone he preferred poisoning, saying, why be messy? You do it nice and calm. He asked Poliferone if he could supply him with pure cyanide. Poliferone told Kuklinski he wanted to hire him to murder a wealthy Jewish cocaine dealer and record Kuklinski speaking in detail about how he would do it. Kuklinski was also recorded boasting he killed a man by putting cyanide on his hamburger and of his plans to kill a couple of rats which were Barbara Deppner and Percy House. On December 17, 1986, Kuklinski met Poliferone to get cyanide for a planned murder, which was to be an attempt on an undercover police officer. After the recorded conversation with Poliferone, Kuklinski went for a walk. He tested Poliferone's purported cyanide on a stray dog using a hamburger as bait and saw it was not poison. Suspicious, Kuklinski decided to not go through with the planned murder and went home instead. He was arrested at a roadblock two hours later. His wife was charged with disorderly conduct for interfering with his arrest. Officers discovered a firearm in the vehicle, and she was charged with possession of a firearm because she was a passenger. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of the trial, but what I will say is that everyone he was associated with turned on him. His passport was seized, his assets frozen, and he was found guilty of the two murders of Smith and Deppner, for which he received six years in prison. During his initial trial, he confessed to killing Maskey and Maliban, for which he received back-to-back -back life sentences. He also confessed to killing Hoffman, but prosecutors decided it wouldn't impact his prison stay and felt his confession was enough. Alright, now, here is where you ask, how in the hell is a psychopath different from any of the other dismal pus buckets I have covered? Here is where it gets really juicy. During his incarceration, Kuklinski granted interviews to prosecutors, psychiatrists, criminologists, and writers. Several television producers also spoke to Kuklinski about his criminal career, upbringing, and personal life. These talks culminated in three televised documentaries known as The Hitman Tapes, broadcast on HBO in 92, 2001, and 2003. In other various interviews, Kuklinski claimed to have murdered over a hundred people. He alleged to use multiple ways to kill people, including a crossbow, ice picks, a bomb attached to a remote-controlled toy, firearms, grenades, as well as cyanide solution spray he considered to be his favorite. 
He said he committed his first murder at 14 and murdered homeless people for practice. In 2006, Paul Smith, a member of the task force involved in arresting Kukwinski and later a supervisor of the Organized Crime Division of the New Jersey Attorney General's Office, said, I checked every one of the murders Kukwinski said he committed, and not one was true. He added, authorities throughout the country could not corroborate one case based on the tidbits Kukwinski gave. In 2020, Dominic Polifrone said, I don't believe he killed 200 people. I don't believe he killed 100 people. I'll go as high as 15, maybe. Kukwinski also alleged he was a mafia contract killer, independently working for all the five families of New York City, as well as the Di Cavalente family of New Jersey. He claimed he carried out dozens of murders on behalf of Gambino soldier Roy DeMeo. He said he was one of the murderers of the Bonanno family boss Carmine Galante in July 1979 and Gambino family boss Carl Castellano in December 1985. For the Castellano murder, Kukwinski said he was personally recruited by John Gotti ally Sammy Gravano, who instructed him to kill Castellano's driver and bodyguard Thomas Bellotti. He told Philip Carlo he was hired by John Gotti to kidnap, torture, and murder John Favara, the man who accidentally killed Gotti's 12-year-old son Frank after hitting him with his car. After he became a government witness in 1990, Sammy Gravano admitted to playing the murder of Castellano and Bellotti, but said the shooters were all members of John Gotti's crew and were chosen by Gotti. He did not mention Kuklinski. Anthony Bruno felt Kuklinski's participation in the killing of Castellano was highly unlikely. Bruno noted that in 1986, Anthony Delicato was convicted of Galante's murder and Kukinski was not mentioned during the trial. According to Jerry Capisi, Philip Carlo claimed the Iceman killed Paul Castellano, Carmine Galante, and Jimmy Hoffa, along with Roy DeMeo. Kukinski claimed he dumped bodies in caves in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and fed a victim to rats in the caves. However, in 2013, the Philadelphia Inquirer noted the caves have had a lot of visitors since Kukinski's time, and no human remains have ever been discovered. Local cave enthusiast Richard Kranzel also queried the idea of flesh-eating rats, saying, The only rats I've encountered in caves are cave rats, and they are reclusive and shy creatures, and definitely not fierce, as Kukunzi claims. Law enforcement officers also doubt he stored a corpse for two years in a Mr. Softy truck. Kukinski said he had murdered his mentor Robert Pronje with four shots to the head, and cyanide was found in his system, leading experts to believe this was one of his earliest attempts at poisoning. His body was later discovered in his Mr. Softy ice cream truck. The list seems endless in his victims as his time as a quote-unquote contract killer, from members of the Gambino crime family to even claims that he had a crucial part in Jimmy Hoffa's death. Kukinski later changed his story saying that he was part of a four-man kidnap crew and killed Hoffa himself. He grabbed Hoffa in Detroit. While they were in the car, Kukinski killed Hoffa by stabbing him with a large hunting knife. He said he drove Hoffa's corpse from Detroit to a New Jersey junkyard. It was placed in a drum and set on fire, then buried in the junkyard. Later, fearing an accomplice might snitch, the drum was disinterred, placed in the trunk of a car, and compacted into a cube. It was sold, along with hundreds of other compacted cars, as scrap metal. It was shipped off to Japan to be used in making new cars. Authorities, however, didn't buy the story for a second, calling most of what Kuklinski said as a hoax, and elaborately made up stories from the mind of a sicko. Kuklinski developed Kawasaki disease, which is a severe inflammation of the blood vessels, 
and died in Trenton Prison in 2006. He was 70 years old. The daughter of Richard Kuklinski, Merrick, has had a very tumultuous time coming to grips with what her father has done. The oldest of three siblings and a mother of two, Merrick is almost six feet tall. She has her father's broad shoulders and large hands. Her father was a big man standing six foot four and, despite her imposing presence, says she is mild and easy to laugh. I'm a very private, quiet person, she says. I'm really more of a listener than a talker. Apparently, she and her father did keep in contact while he was behind bars, but they were never close to being the way it was before. She described her father as being very quiet, but doting, and that they shot some movies together, spending afternoons snuggling and inviting friends over for barbecues. However, his dark side emerged when she was five, when he would fly into rages at any given moment, smashing cabinets, throwing chairs, and they would last for hours, sometimes days. He never physically assaulted her or her siblings, but he did strike his wife, Barbara, on multiple occasions when she would backtalk to the point of emotional abuse. Merrick recalls one instance where Richard broke the neck of her favorite dog because she was late returning home and said that it would happen again if she was late, and she was never late after that. Richard's anger got so bad at times that he would yell, claiming he was a mob hitman, and that if it ever got really bad, that he would kill her mom, her and her siblings, and that she knew he wasn't kidding. She lived in a constant state of fear. Multiple times she wanted to go to the police, but feared her father would find out and kill her. Even one of her sisters wanted to have him committed and hatched a plan to slip Valium into his meatloaf, but decided against it because they feared him so much. Despite it all, her father confided in her about a lot of things from his childhood and toxic family and eventually his murders. He would talk about people pissing him off, people he considered scum, she says. He assigned a value to everyone else, but he never wanted to be judged. At one point, Kuklinski mentioned three more men he had killed as a teenager. There was also the time he described to her the difficulty of cutting the legs off of one of his victims to make the body fit into a steel drum. After high school, she went to Montclair State University, but her father's hold on her was so strong that he convinced her to drop out so she could help him more. What haunts me the most is the reality that my father was a very, very sick, demented man. Between his own background as an abused child and the experiences that shaped his adulthood, the die was cast. Maybe if he'd gotten treatment, some or all of this could have been prevented. That thought haunts me every day. After his death, all he had left her was some drawings, medical records, lists of his favorite songs, some family photos, and, eerily enough, some memos regarding his methods for poisoning people and each poison's effect. According to Merrick, her mother convinced Richard to do the interviews, which would later be aired on HBO called The Iceman and the Psychiatrist, and she was reportedly paid very handsomely for them. There is also a three-part story called The Iceman Tales, which also aired on HBO in 92, 2001, and 2003 and a movie starring Michael Shannon called The Iceman, which is loosely based off of the Arthur Bruno book titled The Iceman, The True Story of a Cold-Blooded Killer. One of the darkest men to ever walk the earth somehow raised a family while secretly taking men from theirs. A twisted irony that somehow eludes my understanding, and many others, I'm sure. But at least we can sleep better knowing that The Iceman is finally, once and for all, chilled.
One thing I always found strange about notorious serial killers is how there has always been a concentration of them in the states, but less so in other countries. From what I've discovered, the most unforgivable predator sleaze has been from Europe, and our next entry leaves very little room to dispute that claim. Mikhail Popkov, aka the Werewolf, aka the Anskar Maniac, is a Russian serial killer and rapist who has murdered around 80 women between 1992 and 2010 in various parts of his native land. As prolific as this man was, very little information is known about his early life, but from what I could find, he was born in Norlisk, in what was then the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, in March 7, 1964, and soon moved with his parents to Angarsk. Beyond that, his parents were said to be fastidious and dutiful, but also very strict, not in an abusive sense, but in an overly protective way. When he became an adult, he had married Elena Popkova and had a daughter named Ekaterina. His day job was that of a police officer in Erskirst, which later was a security guard for a chemical company. By the way, listeners, Ukrainian and Russian is not my native tongue, so please excuse the pronunciation. Moving right along with the bare bones of his biography, Popkov killed dozens of women between the ages of 16 and 40, as well as one policeman in his home city of Ankarsk and other locations within the Irkarsk region. He has stated that he wanted to cleanse the streets of prostitutes and that, committing the murders, I was guided by an inner conviction. He also falsely accused his wife of infidelity and claimed that his brutality was the result of this imagined betrayal. Popkov targeted women who did things he considered immoral, such as going to parties without male chaperones. His usual tactic for luring victims was to go out at night wearing his police uniform, find a potential victim, and offer them a lift in his police car. Instead, he drove them to remote locations where he forced them to disrobe, killed them with tools, including knives, axes, baseball bats, and screwdrivers, and raped their bodies. He also mutilated them so severely that the Russian media labeled him with the aforementioned nicknames. Russian police were involved in the search of one perpetrator as slain women were discovered in the mid-1990s, killed by similar methods. Despite extensive inquiries and testimonies from surviving victims, Popkov eluded police for two decades. However, investigators discovered a pattern, tracks from a Lada 4x4, an off-road vehicle used by law enforcement, were found at numerous crime scenes. DNA testings of 3,500 current and former policemen in Irkars in 2012 facilitated Popkov's capture that same year. In January 2015, he was sentenced to life in prison for 22 murders and two attempted murders. Two years later, Popkov confessed to 59 additional killings, a total victim count which surpasses those of Russian serial killers Andrei Chikato and Alexander Pachuskin. On December 10, 2018, after a trial in the regional court of Ursk in Siberia, he was convicted of 56 further murders. The three alleged killings could not be confirmed due to lack of evidence. He was given a second life sentence. Mikhail Popkov said he stopped after a sexually transmitted disease left him impotent and he lost the will to rape and kill. In July 2020, Popkov confessed to two more killings, bringing the total number of admitted victims to 83. 
There is usually a silver lining at the end saying that their children or wives live happy lives, still struggling to come to grips with what their parent or parents have done. That is not the case here. Of all the fallout from murderous psychopaths, this unit perplexes me the most. Elena Popkova, 48, spoke for the first time on the horrific case that has shocked Russians ahead of an appeal on the 9th of April to reduce his life sentence while the couple's daughter, Ekaterina, a math teacher, insists that she is still her daddy's girl. Married for 28 years, Elena claimed ex-policeman Popkov never showed any signs of being a killer and stressed that she and her family had always felt safe with him. She dismissed claims against him as mere fairy tales, despite his court confession as one of the country's worst serial killers. Elena said, We met on the Monday and Tuesday before sentencing and discussed the situation. He already knew that would be a life sentence. He denied everything. Even when our daughter asked him, he said, Katya, you understand that all these allegations are fairy tales. It is a system. I have worked within it. I know the system well. We have been married for 28 years. If I suspected something wrong, of course, I would divorce him. I support him. I believe him. If he were to be released right now, I would not say a word, and we would continue to live together. I love him. I support him. He did not cause me any harm for all these years. I felt safe with him. Despite his horrific crimes, Olga Mazyokova, senior prosecutor of Ersk region, said his wife did not divorce him, but his family moved to another city. It was hard for them to live in Ensk after such a story. But his wife wrote appeals and asked to see him in jail until the last moment, and they often saw each other, she stated. The wife has not rejected her husband even after his shocking confession to investigators. They are still married. Despite this, his family said they have been left devastated by the conviction and insist he would not have committed such atrocities. The killer's 27-year-old daughter even told a TV interviewer she had wanted to try and solve the crimes for herself to prove her father was innocent. I do not believe any of this. I always felt myself as daddy's girl, she told Channel One. For 25 years we were together hand in hand. We walked together, rode bikes, went to the shops, and he met me from school. We both collect model cars, so we have the same hobby. I wanted to be a criminologist, so I read a book with tips on how investigators catch serial killers, and there were also basic classifications about murderers. Daddy doesn't fit any of these classifications. He doesn't look like some maniac. She said, I cannot believe he walked alone to the forest in a police uniform. Where was the blood? His clothes should have been covered in blood, or if he had tried to wash the blood away, the clothes would have been wet. His wife would definitely have noticed that. He loves his family, cherishes his daughter, and he dreamt about grandchildren. He would not have done this. He will remain my son until my death. He studied well, and from the very beginning, he was an excellent pupil. He loved to cook, pancakes or something like this, and he was very neat, like me. But showing some signs of doubt, she asked her son, Give us some sign that you have done all of this or not, and if so, why? It is hard to live knowing nothing. We need to know. Popkov's sister Elena described his life sentence as a tragedy for the family and, echoing her mother's plea, demanded to know from him if he did commit the crimes. She added, We cannot even think about this. We are shocked, and it causes us pain. There was no violence in our family at all. We just want to know an answer if he did this or not. I don't know what is worse, living in perpetual denial or fully standing by the monster you have come to know. 
This family deserves each other, and may the sick son of a bitch that is indeed a vicious, wicked, and vile blight on the earth howl alone in this wretched cold cell where he will never harm anyone again. There is a serious lack of global killers, and I strive to find the worst ones, and I do believe I found a good one for this next entry. Levi Belfield, aka the Bus Stop Killer, started his cacophonous carnage in March 2002, racking up a total of 25 victims by the time of his arrest in November 2004. Like our previous delight, Mikhail Popkov, there is very limited information listed about his early life. His crimes are what matter, but getting some insight into his childhood and upbringing is always appreciated to understand the madness that lay ahead. Levi Belfield was born at the West Middlesex Hospital in London to Jean and Joseph Rabbits. He is of Romanian descent. When Belfield was 10 years old, his father died from leukemia. Belfield and his siblings, Julian, Harry, Josephine, and Maxine, two brothers and two sisters, were brought up on a southwest London council estate. He attended Forge Lane Junior School and then Rectory Secondary School in Hampton, later moving to Feltham Community College. Belfield's first conviction was for burglary in 1981. He was convicted of assaulting a police officer in 1990. He also has convictions for theft and driving offenses. By 2002, Belfield had nine convictions and had spent almost one year in prison for them. In an interview with the media, Detective Chief Inspector Colin Sutton of the Metropolitan Police, who led the murder investigation, said of Belfield, When we started dealing with him, he came across as very jokey, like he's your best mate, but he's a cunning individual, violent. He can switch from being nice to being nasty instantly. Belfield's search for victims on the streets he knew intimately. Detectives tracked down a number of ex-girlfriends who all described a similar pattern of behavior when they got involved with him. He was lovely at first, charming, then completely controlling and evil. They all said the same, said Detective Sergeant Joe Brunt. At the time of the attacks, Belfield ran a wheel clamping business which operated around West Drayton, where he lived. He was seen driving around in his van, talking to young girls at bus stops while under police surveillance. Amelia Delagrange was seen by CCTV cameras, which showed her walking towards Twickenham Green after she missed her stop on the bus home. She may have stopped and spoken to Belfield between the last two sightings of her. She was attacked shortly afterwards. The list of known victims is short as opposed to the ones he is supposedly linked to. Amanda Jane Millie Dowler was a 13-year-old girl who went missing on leaving Walton-on-Thames railway station on March 21, 2002, and was found dead in Yately Heath Woods Yately six months later. In August 2009, Surrey Police submitted a dossier to the Crown Prosecution Services, containing evidence of Belfield's involvement in the murder of Dowler. On March 30, 2010, Belfield was charged with the kidnapping and murder of Dowler, as well as the attempted kidnapping of then-12-year-old Rachel Cowles on March 20, 2002. Belfield did not give evidence at his trial and denied any involvement in Dowler's death. A jury convicted Belfield of Millie Dowler's murder on 23 June 2011. Marsha Louise McDonald, a 19-year-old woman, was beaten over the head with a blunt instrument near her home in Hampton in February 2003. The wound was inflicted shortly after she got off the 111 bus from Kingston upon Thames at the stop on Percy Road. 
McDonald died in hospital two days after being admitted. Belfield sold his Vauxhall Corsa car for £1,500 six days after the murder, having bought it for £6,000 just five months earlier. Kate Sheedy, then aged 18, was deliberately run over as she crossed the road near an entrance to an industrial estate in Isworth in May 21, 2004. She survived with multiple injuries and consequently spent several weeks in hospital. Nearly four years later, Sheedy gave evidence against Belfield where he was tried for her attempted murder. Sheedy had been able to describe the car in some detail after the attack as a white people carrier with blacked out windows and a broken wing mirror. Belfield was found to have owned, at the time of the attack, a Toyota Previa with blacked out windows and a broken wing mirror. Millie DeGrange was a 22-year-old French student visiting the UK. She was found in Twickenham Green on the evening of 19th of August 2004 with serious head injuries and died in hospital the same night. Within 24 hours, the police established that she may have been killed by the same person who had killed Marsha McDonald 18 months earlier. Belfield reportedly confessed to the murder while on remand. Belfield was also charged with abduction and false imprisonment of Anna Maria Rini, then aged 17, in Witten on October 14, 2001, after she identified him in a video identity parade four years later. He was also charged with the attempted murder of Irma Dragashi, then age 39, in Longford on 16th December 2003. The jury failed to reach verdicts on either of these charges. After his February 2008 convictions, Belfield was named by police as a suspect in connection with numerous unsolved murders and attacks on women dating back to 1990, as well as the murder of his childhood girlfriend, 14-year-old Patsy Morris, in 1980. Morris was killed one year before Belfield's first conviction for burglary at age 13. Belfield has reportedly boasted in prison of killing Morris and police said they would be investigating him for murder in 2008 after he confessed to his cellmate. After Belfield's 2008 conviction, police revealed that they were reviewing the murder of 51-year-old Judith Gold in Hampstead in October 1990. She had died yards from her home after being hit several times in the face by an unidentified weapon. Police believe Belfield could have been responsible for this alongside around 20 other unsolved attacks on women in London. Police were informed in early 2015 that Belfield, in his cell in HM Prison Wakefield, had admitted to unsolved rape and murder cases. The Metropolitan Police coordinated the subsequent investigations of 10 police forces. On November 9, 2016, they issued a statement which said all lines of inquiry have now been exhausted and a decision has been taken to close this investigation as there is no evidence to link the individual to any case for which he has not already been convicted. It was later revealed by police that Belfield may have lied about other murders so he could inflict pain on their families. Regarding the 96 murder of Lynn Russell and her daughter Megan, BBC Semru Wales reported that Belfield had allegedly confessed to the murders to a fellow prisoner, giving details that would only be known by the killer. Belfield denied the confession. A 2017 BBC Two program, The Children Murders, in which a team of independent experts re-examined the evidence, supported the idea Belfield should be investigated for the killings. The legal team of Michael Stone, convicted of the crimes, maintains Belfield is a true perpetrator of the attack. In December 2017, the Sunday Times reported that Belfield's ex-wife Johanna Collings had told investigators in a Del Grange case that he was with her on the day for her 25th birthday, the time of the Russell murders, and had spent all day in Twickenham and Windsor, 100 miles away from the scene of the murders, which occurred at around 4.30pm. It was an alibi which detectives found credible. 
Collings had helped detectives convict Belfield for those previous murders, such as in the Millie Dollar murder, giving evidence that he knew the area well where her body was left. In February 2022, it was claimed by Stone's lawyer, Paul Bacon, that Belfield had confessed to the murders of Lynn and Megan Russell in a four-page statement, with details he claimed only the killer would know. However, as well as his former wife previously saying it was not possible they could have been in Kent on that day, a member of Stone's legal team also later admitted that there was nothing in Belfield's statement, which was not already in the public domain, suggesting he could have fabricated using known evidence. The detective responsible for investigating Belfield's known crimes, Colin Sutton, also stated to the press, Knowing Belfield as I do, this could be him playing mind games. The Metropolitan Police previously investigated allegations that Belfield was involved in the Russell murders and found no evidence to support the claims. Bobby Louise Belfield is the oldest child of Levi. Bobby Louise remembered a tough childhood and the abuse her mother suffered from Levi who raped and beat her. He beat mom up quite a few times, I saw it happen. I felt scared and shocked. It was bad. It wasn't just a few slaps, it was more horrific than that. Levi Belfield's other daughters, Jessica, Hannah, and Janie, also remember the abuse their father, who insisted on his daughters calling him Levi, inflicted on them. After he and his wife broke up, Levi stalked the family. Bobby Louise recalled the day 13-year-old schoolgirl Millie Dowler went missing, and her father began acting very odd. He would never shout at me, but that night he was shouting at me to get out of the room. He was on edge. I was scared, thinking, why would he do that? Later. When they were in Levi's girlfriend's apartment, he refused to let Bobby Louise in his bedroom. There was something in there he was hiding, you could tell. At the time, I didn't think he had Millie in there. Now I do think that. She also recalled her father's behavior around young women. He was always beeping at girls walking down the street. They were clearly in uniform. He would shout, oi, oi, and things like that. For Bobby Louise, there is no love left for her father. She will not visit him in jail and has said, I hope he rots in hell. I know it sounds harsh, but I really do. I don't ever want to see him again. With such a big family, does not come comfort and security. If anything, it makes for more potential victims. The wife became subject to his ongoing rage, and his daughters received an evil brand on their hearts that their father so willingly placed there. I have a special treat for our last entry. Going down under usually means kangaroos, koalas, and spiders large enough to give you nightmare fuel for years to come, but it certainly doesn't conjure up any human nightmares. Well, this time it does. Lindsay Robert Rose is an Australian multiple murderer and contract killer responsible for five murders between the years of 84 and 94. Like some previous entries, not much is really known beyond the basics of his early life. He was born Lindsay Robert Lehman on May 2nd, 1955 in North Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. He was raised by his mother, who had separated from Rose's father before Rose was born. He became Lindsay Rose after his mother remarried. Rose grew up in Sydney's western suburbs and completed an apprenticeship as a fitter and turner before joining the New South Wales Ambulance Service in 1976. He was notably one of the first responders at the Granville train disaster in 1977. Rose left the ambulance service and became a licensed private investigator in 1979. 
There isn't any information regarding the five years before his first murder, but it is speculated he may have engaged in some form of criminal behavior or unreported acts of assault before stepping it up. On January 20th, 1984, Rose shot and killed Edward John Bill Cavanaugh and Cavanaugh's girlfriend, Carmelita Lee, at their home in Sydney's Hoxton Park. Rose later told investigators that he'd murdered Cavanaugh as revenge for the alleged beating of one of Rose's friends a few years earlier. He murdered Lee so as to not leave a witness. Cavanaugh ran a trucking business and it was alleged that he was involved with the Calabrian Mafia, including the notorious drug lord Robert Trimble. On January 19, 1987, Rose broke into the West Ride home of wealthy businessman William Bill Graff, intending to commit a burglary. He was surprised on the premises by Graff's de facto Raynette Holford. Rose stabbed Holford multiple times with a screwdriver and a vegetable knife. He then tied her up, made her escape, and Holford died from her injuries. On February 14, 1994, Rose shot and killed Fatma Ozono and then shot and stabbed Carrie Pang to death at Pang's massage parlor, Carrie's Oasis, in Gladsville. Ronald Waters was offered payment of $500 to assist Rose by knocking on the door and getting access to the premises as Pang would have recognized Rose. He did not know how things were going to turn out. Ronald Waters never received this payment. The murder of Pang had been arranged by her de facto partner, Mark Lewis. Lewis was later found guilty of both murders and sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for the murder of Pang, plus 18 years for the murder of Ozonel. Waters pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact to the murders and was sentenced to 18 months periodic detention. Evidence at Lewis's trial indicated that the motive for Pang's murder was difficulties in Lewis and Pang's relationship and Lewis's dissatisfaction with Pang's line of work as well as Rose's reported hatred of Pang. Azonal was not part of the murder plan, it was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Because of his profession, Rose was not a suspect for any of the five murders until 96, when a corrupt police officer, an associate of Rose, told NSW police detectives that Rose had boasted of committing at least two murders. After being questioned, Rose evaded police surveillance on July 4th, 1996 and drove from Sydney to Adelaide, South Australia. In Adelaide, he obtained employment using his birth name, Lindsay Lehman, but was not located until 40 weeks later when a member of the public identified Rose after his mugshot was broadcast on television news programs on April 9, 1997. Rose was arrested the next morning, arriving for work by members of the South Australian Police Star Force. On June 18, 1998, Rose pleaded guilty to the five murders in the Supreme Court of New South Wales. He was represented by the well-known barrister, Stuart Littlemore, QC. On September 3, 1998, Rose was sentenced to five consecutive terms of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Rose was also found guilty of other crimes such as extortion, robbery, larceny, malicious wounding, and many others. He was sentenced to an additional 40 years, adding another 10 years for another charge of hijacking a cigarette truck found to have contained over $600,000 worth of product. Every child on this list has either had a good childhood with their father, remembers their father being a fantastic role model, or just the opposite. Alicia Rose, however, who was Lindsay Rose's only kid, had a very different interaction. Alicia was four months old in 1984, when her father, who didn't live with the family, started his decade-long killing spree near Sydney, Australia. She had no idea who her father truly was until she was nearly 13 years old and came home from school to see police there. I instinctively knew something was wrong. 
Little did I know how irrevocably my life would change in the next few minutes. Alicia was horrified when she learned that her father was accused of murder and said that she knelt on the mat in her lounge room watching the evening news. She and her mother were placed in witness protection shortly after. Her father's crimes had a lasting impact on Alicia. My father's actions have created horrific trauma, loss, and grief to their families, and that will be intergenerational trauma for those families. Alicia went on to study law and criminal justice. Life continued despite the upheaval, she said, except that I carried a secret with me everywhere. My father killed five people. But Alicia often felt herself struggling. The harder I tried to understand my father's actions and try to make sense of my life, the more complex and intricate the puzzle became. She has found fulfillment by working with various charitable organizations, but her father's crimes made an undeniable mark on her life. Maybe it is good that she had no real solid fond memories with her father because it would be all that much more painful to realize that the man that you had believed to be your protector and provider was actually snuffing out the lives of strangers that didn't deserve such an awful fate at the hands of a sickening, twisted psychopath. And so at last, we come to the end of our blood trail of tragedy and dismay. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed narrating. This marks the end of Season 1, with Season 2 beginning around early October with different topics, so mark your calendars, creepy ones. Lots of surprises around every corner that you won't want to miss. Until next time, be safe and stay curious.